Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work from home period that, uh, in which we try to really replicate the experience that we provide at our SALT conference series. And what we're really trying to do is provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are important ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Robert Draper to SALT Talks. Uh, Robert is a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine and a contributing writer uh, to National Geographic. He's the author of several acclaimed books, and one of which we'll talk about today, his most recent book, which is To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq. And Robert is really one of the preeminent writers talking about the Bush administration period. Uh, he, he wrote a previous book about uh, the Bush administration as well, uh, closer to the time that they were in office. Robert lives in Washington, D.C. today. And uh, a reminder, if you have any questions for Robert during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And conducting today's interview, again, will be Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. John, thank you. Robert, great to have you on. Uh, I've read uh, several of your books, and obviously I uh, always try to read your articles in New York Times Magazine. Uh, before we get into that, though, tell us a little bit about your professional and personal background. How did you uh, find this career arc, and uh, what was driving you as a kid to get you to where you are today? Sure. Uh, Anthony, thanks for having me on. And um, I'm kind of the black sheep of my family. I come from a family of lawyers, but I uh, uh, found at a very early age that I was basically incapable of doing anything other than writing. And so thank God I managed to figure out how to do it for a living. I'm uh, from Houston, Texas originally. I uh, became a staff writer at Texas Monthly. And while I was a staff writer there in the 1990s, I became acquainted with the new governor of Texas, George W. Bush, uh, and um, <clears throat> uh, got to know him. And so at around the time that he moved to Washington and became president, I sort of sat back and waited to see um, uh, uh, how his presidency would unwind, had no aspirations of, of uh, making a cottage industry out of Bush, like the way a lot of Texas journalists had. But then by the end of his first term, had frankly decided that um, None of the other biographies about Bush really captured uh, the character of Bush as I knew it. And so I sought to um, uh, make myself his biographer, as it were, and I moved to Washington, D.C. I've been here ever since. And so you're, uh, one of the bo Bush books was Dead Certain. You sort of wrote that during the, not the middle, but the second term of the, <clears throat> of the administration. And this is sort of the second book. Uh, about the book. Is that correct? Would this be the second one? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so I may just hold the book up. I love promoting uh, fellow authors. Robert, in case you didn't know, I've written four New York Times internationally recognized bestsellers. And if you don't believe me, come into my basement. I'll show you every copy <laughs> that I had to buy to make that happen. But, <laughs> Outstanding. But you, on the other hand, actually sell books, uh, which is uh, very impressive. And this is a fantastic read. And we're going to get into it in a second, but I want to talk to you first about a New York Times Magazine article that you wrote recently called Unwanted Truths, Inside President Trump's Battle with the U.S. Intelligence Agencies. Uh, tell our uh, viewers and listeners, what are the unwanted truths that were in that article, and how is the president trying to subvert them? Anthony, the, the story is basically about um, the collision course between a president who um, has 
Councillor Kellyanne Conway uh, memorably described as embracing alternative facts. The collision between that kind of person and a community of government officials whose job it is um, to actually lay out the facts, to, to present the uncomfortable truth. And the one uncomfortable truth in particular that this president has been unwilling or unable to abide has been the matter that um, uh, Russia interfered with the 2016 election um, to swing the election towards Trump and intends to do so um, yet again for the same purpose in 2020. To this president, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's understandable why he would feel this way, to suggest that Russia um, tried uh, to make him president is to call into question the legitimacy of his presidency. But rather than recognize that reality for what it is and, and to own it and to say, um, therefore, um, we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. He has time and again refused to acknowledge that that's true. In fact, said the opposite, that it's not true. And more to the point, and this is what my story really deals with, Anthony, has punished those people in the intelligence community who have said what the intelligence community has plainly assessed, namely that Russia tried to swing the election in his favor. Okay, so there are many of our fellow Americans that do not believe that Russia tried to sway the election in his favor. So for the benefit of uh, some of the people on this call, tell us what you learned from the intelligence agencies in terms of what Russia was doing in 2016. And then secondarily, what do you think they will be doing in 2020? What are they already doing in 2020? Sure. In 2016, um, the Russians assumed, as did everyone, including, I think, candidate Donald Trump, that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And so their chief uh, aim was to delegitimize her, to demoralize her electorate, to make her presidency a hobbled one at the outset. Sometime in the fall of 2016, it became apparent to the Russians that um, the Republican nominee could actually win. And, and so they began to step up their disinformation. Uh, they began to try uh, unsuccessfully to hack into infrastructure, uh, to use various trolls and bots on Facebook and elsewhere, uh, to amplify negative messages relating to Hillary and to promote uh, uh, candidate Trump. And it's impossible to know, Anthony, to what degree, if at all, um, that was determinative. It may well be that, that uh, Trump would have won anyway. Um, we'll never know. But what is clear is that, uh, um, and the intelligence community assessed this, was that that was what Russia did, and that's why Russia did it. They have sought again to do so in 2020. And what I write about in, in this story is a national intelligence estimate, which is this assessment that is made by the entire intelligence community on any particular subject. This one had to do with Russia attempting yet again to interfere this upcoming November. And once again, it assessed that Russia favored the current president, that they believed that, um, uh, that Russia probably believed that under a new president, there would be um, increased sanctions, and it would just basically be much more of a slog for the Russians. And so that's, they're, and they're again, using, I think, albeit in a more sophisticated manner, uh, trolls and bots through the Russia internet agency, through other means. Um, they are also still trying to hack into our infrastructure and uh, the Department of Homeland Security has spearheaded what we hope will be a successful counter to that. But what is already clear, Anthony, is that if they, if DHS uh, and the rest of the government succeeds 
it will not be because President Trump has encouraged them to succeed. Really, it will be the opposite since the president has now pushed out this message that, no, no, it's not really Russia that's trying to interfere. It's China. And China is trying to interfere on Biden's behalf, not mine. So it's China we should be concerned about. Yeah, no, it's, it, listen, I, and, and I appreciate the disinformation that's out there. One last question on this. Uh, the damage done to our intelligence agencies, Robert, is it repairable? Is it something we can recover from or has he done systemic and permanent damage? I don't think it's systemic and permanent, Anthony, but it's also not simply a matter of replacing one president with another. Uh, I think that, that we have lost some credibility uh, uh, within the intelligence community among potential human assets who now aren't sure whether, you know, um, just whether we're on the level. Um, there has been concern that information given uh, that finds its way to this president could then be leaked to the Russians and, um, and you know, so and, and, and frankly, you know, even if President Trump is defeated, Anthony, as you well know, that does not mean that Trumpism will be. And it does not mean that there will suddenly be a wholehearted embrace of the intelligence community's findings of, of faith in government institutions. Far from it. I suspect that we're, we're in for a long haul here. And the intelligence community is going to be caught in the crossfire, just like a lot of other government institutions. All right, listen, I think, I think, I think it's well said. Do you, do you think there's any Russian involvement in these protests that are being organized around the country, particularly the one in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I don't know about Kenosha, Anthony, but, there, but the New York Times did report um, about a week ago that, that the intelligence community believed that there was evidence of Russian activity in the protests in Portland and that they were doing what they could. Russians were actual live bodies on the ground to sort of fan the flames of that sense. Um, disorder, uh, basically, uh, uh, helps stoke the argument that what we need is law and order and thus what we need is the president. For Kenosha, I have not, I'm not aware of any intelligence that indicates that, but it is not a very far leap of the imagination from Portland to Kenosha uh, to figure that at minimum they are feeding disinformation that relates to the riots and at maximum we're actually participants in it. Well, I mean, it's just curious. Kenosha, Wisconsin itself, if you look at the electoral map, uh, it's going to be very difficult for the president to win without Wisconsin. Right. If you just look at the way the map is shaping itself up. So it's uh, it, it, it's something that is worrisome that you see the activity in Kenosha, certainly the tragedy that took place there and the exacerbation of that tragedy. So we'll have to see what happens. And so, uh, but this is a seminal book, uh, uh, How to Start a War. It's a seminal book. You say something in the introduction, which I loved, it, the elusive goal of trying to have peace by starting a war. Uh, and then you talk a lot about linkages or non-linkages to Saddam Hussein as it related to the Trade Center. Uh, but yet there seemed to be a determined discipline inside the administration that they were going to use 9-11 as a leveraging point to go to war with Iraq. Uh, and so, so tell us about your observations of that administration, what they were doing right, what they were doing wrong and uh, what your conclusions were. Sure, I mean, start with this, Anthony. Before 9-11, I really do believe that George W. Bush intended to be a domestic-focused president. He didn't know much about foreign policy. He'd been a governor of a state that bordered Mexico, so he knew a bit about Mexico, and he knew from personal animus, um, you know, from a family history, a bit about Saddam Hussein. 
But the evidence to me was pretty clear that Bush didn't want to spend his presidency hugging war widows. He wanted to pass tax cuts, education reform, immigration reform. And um, I mean, it's, that's how he was as governor. He, he believed an executive should do three or four things, do them right, and uh, then you know, let the government tick away on its own. 9-11 happened. He wasn't prepared for it. He should have been. There were ample warnings that al-Qaeda was, was intending to attack the homeland, and he just simply did not lean into that the way he should have. I think you can argue that he overcompensated as a result of that, that he began to look for the next wave that he was certain would, uh, would take place and began to imagine the next wave as being even worse than 9-11 because perhaps an Al-Qaeda kind of group would use weapons of mass destruction. But where would they get those WMD from? He began then to imagine that they would perhaps come from this rogue foe of the United States, Saddam Hussein, um, the butcher of Baghdad, as it were. You notice I've used the word imagine two or three times, and I think that's the real problem in, in the thing that I uncovered in this saga, that where 9-11 arguably was a failure of the imagination. You could say the Iraq war was a failure of too much imagination, of imagination run amok, of um, there, there were intelligence failures to be sure, but the real failure was that the president departed from intelligence altogether and began to think of what could happen. And part of what could happen, and this goes to what you mentioned about the very beginning of, of my book, Anthony, is that um, uh, there was a belief that that all sorts of dire things could happen if we didn't go to war. And then alongside that, a very sunny belief in all the wonderful things that would happen once we did go to war, that, that Iraq would erupt in this joyous display of democracy where something like that had never existed before. And this too was a feat of the imagination and I think, you know, a tragic one. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned a Harvard professor's name that I haven't heard in a while named uh, Lori yeah. Mallory. I think I pronounced your name right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, she was a big believer that Saddam was part of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and therefore had to be linked to the 2001 tragedy. Uh, but you didn't find any real intelligence or re any real evidence of that. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, not only did I not find any indication whatsoever that Saddam had any linkage to 9-11, but it's also fallacious um, as to pursue, as Laura, Laurie Milroy did, this notion that he was involved in 1993, World Trade Center attempted bombing. The FBI, um, for a time, was pursuing any and all leads. If, if, if um, the perpetrator were Iraqi or Afghan or from Mars, they didn't care. They just wanted to get who did it. But, but all the leads died that, that headed towards Iraq. They thought that that was a foolish notion. And further, I should mention that Laurie Milroy also thought that Saddam was behind the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing as well. So basically everything that was bad that had happened to the world, she believes Saddam was responsible for it. And we're talking about her, of course, because she's not just some character on the margins. She's someone that people of the Bush administration actually lent credence to, most especially the Deputy Paul Secretary Wolfowitz. of Defense, yeah. Paul Wolfowitz, who in so many ways was the straw that stirred the drink on the whole Iraq saga. Uh, see, I see that Reggie Jackson, you brought up the Reggie Jackson yeah, metaphor. Exactly. Good for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm a Met fan, Robert. Yeah. Just take it easy there. Right. It was the worst <laughs> loss in Met history yesterday, okay? I'm still crying about <laughs> oh, it. Come Help on. is coming, Anthony. Help is okay. coming. And then, and then I told my brother, I'm not watching the doubleheader. By the third inning, I turned on the, the TV, you know. When you're a Met fan, you live in pain your whole life. Uh, but, okay, you hurt my feelings by bringing up Reggie Jackson. But let me get back to the show here. Uh -huh. uh, the, uh, 
The thing I guess I, I want to ask you about, there was a couple of failures, right? Obviously, the weapons of mass destruction, you go into it in the book. Why was that such an epic fail? Uh, and then secondarily, there was an opportunity there to have the Republican Guard with Paul Bremer and uh, Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz uh, to help contain the insurrection that was taking place or what ultimately became the Iraqi resistance and ISIS. Talk about those two failures of ours. What did we miss in that process? Sure. One of them was an intelligence failure. The other was an ideological failure. The intelligence failure had to do with a supposition that the intelligence community, and by that I mean not just the CIA, but I mean pretty much every intelligence agency in the world, had that Saddam, which, you know, Iraq, which once had weapons of mass destruction, and um, uh, which had used them, in fact, on, on uh, the Iranians and on Saddam's own people, that they surely had them again, owing largely to the fact that, well, I mean, um, he's certainly behaving like a guy who has them. He hasn't denied he's had them. Uh, and um, uh, he's, he's uh, pushing around the weapons inspectors who are on the ground there. And, and then the, the intelligence community from there began themselves to take imaginative leaps. They would see, literally see trucks coming in and out of known chemical plants and assume that those were decontamination trucks spraying the floors of a chemical weapons facility. They were just water trucks hosing things down. But this was, again, the matter that if you start with a, you start with a, a dark conclusion, uh, then you find facts here and there that will con conform to that. That's confirmation bias. And unfortunately, uh, the CIA was very much in concert with government officials um, who also believe the same thing. Now, the second part that you mentioned had to do with uh, uh, um, the failure of the U.S. government to keep the peace in Iraq once we did invade by uh, keeping the Iraqi uh, army intact. That actually had been the policy of the Bush administration. It was reversed on the ground by Paul Bremer, uh, the head of our coalition provisional authority. And he did so in concert with the, with the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Doug Fife, and an outside advisor named Walt Slocum. There's, they had this ideological notion that the Iraqi army was filled with, with bad dudes, with bathos, and, and that they needed to be basically torched uh, and rebuilt anew with true believers. And, uh, and this was a kind of idiotic notion, frankly. I mean, it's, there, um, to, be a, to be anybody, uh, in the Iraqi regime, you had to be a member of the Ba'ath Party. If you wanted to be an electrical engineer, if you wanted to be a school teacher, and so yes, you had to pledge fealty to the Ba'ath Party if you wanted to join the army. So the very notion that, that um, uh, you could find an altogether different army, an altogether different group of government employees, um, uh, and disband uh, the army as well as the Ba'ath Party in the meantime, only meant that you were going to piss off a bunch of um, Iraqi men who were now unemployed and had guns. And that was really the makings of the insurgency. Well, no, no question. So when I, I, I visited uh, Baghdad on a troop support mission in January 2011, we met with Lloyd Austin in one of Saddam's old palaces. I guess that was our NATO uh, mm -hmm. headquarters. And he was lamenting that decision and lamenting how the insurgency developed. But he also, uh, at that time we were in the Obama administration, he did not want troop force deployment to drop below 20,000. He said there would be a rise of ISIS. No, I had never heard of that word or Daesh before. And of course, of course that happened. And so uh, some of these decisions are made for political purposes. Uh, you do write in the book that uh, 
you know, uh, Rove was sort of thinking we got to get the war started before, uh, you know, Labor Day and, and or at least, you know, get 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 the rumblings going so that we could get the election cycle turned on and wartime presidents don't get usually sent uh, home. They usually get reelected. Uh, how much of these mistakes that we made in To Start a War, your book, were born from politics as opposed to policy? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a, that's a well-phrased question, Anthony, because I do think that you have to kind of parse this and, and um, or disaggregate it. In Bush's case, again, for all of his many flaws, I do not think that he went to war for political reasons. I don't think he went to war to get oil. I don't think he went to war to appease Israel. I think he truly went to war because um, he felt the need to protect America after he had failed to do so on September the 11th. And I do not think the, the political considerations factored into that. Uh, I do think, though, that for those people who gave a glide path to war, that is to say people in Capitol Hill, uh, there, it was rife with political considerations. And, you know, that for all these Democrats, uh, including Hillary Clinton, including Joe Biden, uh, certainly Hillary Clinton, um, who gave the president authorization to use military force, they were very aware of the fact, Anthony, that in 1991, when a vote for military force um, for a war last came up in the first Gulf War, all these Democrats voted against it because their memory of war was this intractable forever war of Vietnam, and they didn't want to be attached to that in any way. They voted against the first Gulf War. The first Gulf War ended up lasting all of 100 hours. It was a roaring success, and the presidential ambitions of Sam Nunn, one of the Democrats who voted against it, were immediately squashed. And so there were a lot of Democrats who thought, I'm not going that way again. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, it's, you know, we hope war will be as tidy this time as it was last time. And so I do think that, that um, uh, you, you see uh, among Democrats and certainly among Republicans who felt the need to stay with their wartime president, um, uh, a number of considerations that don't look entirely fact-based. They, they do have the ring of politics to them. If you had a member of the policy establishment, Republican or Democrat, read this book. Uh, and some of it reminded me actually of uh, Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman in terms of like the different scenarios that were came out. What would you want a policy person to take away as a teachable moment from your book? Yeah, I think it's that, I mean, because war is so messy, um, because war in, invariably entails uh, second and third order consequences that you don't foresee and that tend not to be good, then you need to follow the truth. You need to have an earnest pursuit of, um, of precisely whether war is merited and precisely what will happen when you do go to war. And, you know, I, uh, I think that, that um, you know, what, the infuriating thing, and that's the word that I've heard most often um, ascribed to my narrative in this book, is, is uh, that there's so much that any half serious inquisition of the truth would lead you to that that uh, that Iraqis had no experience in self-governing they had no experience in democracy that there were these sectarian tensions that there was in fact no hard cold evidence of weapons of mass destruction that there was no evidence whatsoever that Saddam even if he did have weapons intended to use them against America and and if um, if we had gotten out from under our biases and simply pursued where the truth left, 
uh, led, we would have been left with a conclusion that war was not only unnecessary, but undesirable. And, and it seems like so basic that um, just follow the facts would be the advice that this book offers policymakers, but it is a reminder of just what kinds of disasters can ensue if you don't follow the facts. That's interesting. So I so then I would say in summary, to start a war is basically the lesson here is how to not start a war. That's ultimately what it is, because by not starting a war, you don't get all of these unintended consequences that take place. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to John Darcy. Uh, who's in his new venue there in North Carolina. He's trying to pretend that he's a Southerner now instead of the rank wasp that I know him to be. And he's got some questions from the, uh, from the audience. So go ahead, John. John's yeah, really, trying, this I've is an image improvement for him. Draper, I'm, just I'm so just you know, this is an image improvement. Go ahead, okay. John. <laughs> I'm just put a hillbilly on trying to convince John. everybody that I'm a, you know, I'm a Northeastern wasp. I having those paintings and everything in the background, but I'm back to my roots now. So I can, I can talk in my Southern accent and feel comfortable. And I know Robert's a Houston guy. So, so he sympathizes with me a little bit. I can understand what you're saying. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, you wrote another great book in 2012 called do not ask what good we do. It was later republished under the title when the tea party came to town and this is switching gears a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the book was about the actions of both Democrats and Republicans in Congress during President Obama's first term. And then basically the, the gist of a lot of what you talk about is how Republicans got together after Obama was elected and vowed to do everything they could to fight his agenda at all costs. Was that different and, and more hyper-partisan than other periods in history? And, and what do you think now if, if Biden is to win the election and he sets out his agenda in his first term, what do you think politicians and the Democratic Party have learned from that period of time? And, and how do you think it's affected governance in the period since President Obama's first term? Yeah, sure, John. I mean, I do think that the period that my book begins with, so right after Obama's election, or right after his inauguration, um, is not dissimilar to what happened when um, Newt Gingrich's, uh, you know, uh, uh, revolution led the Republicans to take over the House in January of 1995. At least in intention, the intention was to, you know, to grind um, uh, Democratic Party policies to a screeching halt and to augur in a conservative revolution. But in practice, what you'll recall is that um, uh, Gingrich actually worked with uh, then President Clinton um, quite successfully on a number of measures. And, and uh, this, this really teed off a lot of um, Republican House members who thought that he was being a little too acquiescent of Clinton, maybe, maybe uh, you know, falling prey to the president's silver tongue. Uh, but, uh, but the fact is that it was not a time of nonstop gridlock. What you described as the prologue to my book, Do Not Ask What Good We Do, is, is that um, hours after Obama's inauguration, all these Republicans are gathered in a steakhouse kind of licking their wounds. And by the end of the evening, they've, they've come up with a battle plan to thwart anything and everything that this new president does. So rather than it being, um, let's figure out a way to work together, but to move things towards our side, it's basically we're going to fight this president on everything. It, that's a kind of fight club mentality that I think we have come to see you know, um, all the way till now. I mean, uh, this is, it's kind of reached its apotheosis right now where um, uh, the president of the United States has basically said, I'm going to have as little to do with Capitol Hill as possible. I'm going to bend 
um, that institution as well as practically any other institution to my will. And, uh, and you know, it does kind of beg a question, will we ever get back to a moment where there are not only checks and balances between the legislative and executive branch, but also a kind of, you know, inter-party comity between the two parties on Capitol Hill, such that um, uh, there won't be this constant, uh, uh, you know, kneecapping or thwarting of any objectives, but instead a working together. I honestly don't see any evidence that we will easily come back to that. I mean, the, the, John, I think the, the the axiom had always been that, well, in times of crisis, Americans come together. Coronavirus constitutes a crisis. We are anything but a come together nation at this point. Do you think Donald Trump is more of a symptom of greater division than necessarily the disease and something that we can overcome with someone like Joe Biden, who has actually been criticized in Democratic circles for talking about his history of working across the aisle? Yeah, well, I think you're right. That, that um, so uh, I, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, I was just going to say that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do think so that you, that's the case. You can elaborate on it, and then I'm, I'm going to switch gears to another audience question. No problem. No problem. Yeah, yeah. So I do think that that um, uh, uh, that Trump is symptomatic, but he's also an accelerant of it. I mean, it's uh, right. he has exacerbated something that already existed. So as I was researching this salt talk, I, I found interesting the juxtaposition between your article about Trump's battles with the U.S. intelligence community and your book about how members of the Bush administration, which is, you know, you could call an established administration, sort of game the intelligence system to, to reach an outcome that they wanted. You know, is Trump right in some ways to question intelligence at face value and take a more skeptical view of the intelligence community? Or, or is this something... Uh, that's very dangerous and leads us into sort of a post-truth world that you think is gonna it's gonna be hard to get the horses back in the barn. Well, he would be right to question the intelligence at face value, or rather, not to accept it at face value. To be a skeptic, I think one should always be so. One should always ask the next question. Well, you know, who's your sourcing on this? Are you sure about this? You know, could it be X, Y, Z? That's unfortunately not what the president's doing. Instead, the president is first of all using the WMD fiasco, something that I think the the intelligence community has learned a great deal from, um, as a an excuse to say we don't ever need to trust these guys because look how badly they bungled it before. And then situationally to um, take the intelligence that he likes uh, while um, any intelligence that happens to be politically inconvenient to him, for example, the notion that Russia interfered in the election to sway the election to his favor um, as something that is baloney. Uh, things like, uh, I mean, he didn't decide and locate Soleimani himself. You know, it's, I mean, it's a, he did that with the help of the intel community. Now he's taking credit for it. Fine, that's what presidents do. But al-Baghdadi's, you know, assassination, Soleimani's assassination came because the intelligence community managed to pinpoint their locations. He approved it, signed off on it, and those are clear intelligence triumphs. Um, so you cannot say, even if you're Donald Trump, that we should never listen to these guys. The question is, um, do, you, uh, do you only listen to them uh, when they succeeded at something and then you blame them when, when uh, something doesn't succeed? And I'm afraid that's what we've been saying most recently. All right. I had to play devil's advocate a little bit just to get the answer out of you, but I think we all know the answer to that question. Um, so I want to switch gears again a little bit back to the Middle East. So we recently had our SALT conference in Abu Dhabi. 
uh, in the UAE. We've also had a lot of Israeli entrepreneurs at our SALT conferences, including actually at SALT Abu Dhabi. So I, I'm not going to say we take credit for the Abraham Accord between the UAE and Israel, but it's definitely a, a step in the right direction in terms of fostering economic cooperation, which leads to geopolitical cooperation in the region. Do you think that's a template and sort of a precursor to you know, greater stability and understanding within the region? Do you think it's an outlier or what do you think the future of the region is? And do we have hope to, you know, empower some of these countries economically and hopefully lead to a, a dialing down of some of the extremism and, and uh, hate that exists between different countries in the region? Sure. I mean, I, I don't want to short sell that achievement. Anything that leads to more cooperation between Israel and the Arab countries is something to be applauded. And I'll also caveat that I'm by no means an expert on this. It does seem to me, however, to be uh, an accord that kind of amounts to low-hanging fruit. You know, it's it uh, um, it's it's not exactly one that um, uh, that benefits. Um, you know, say the Palestinians or brings them to the table. It's one that has a lot of economic and actual, you know, arms um, implications to it. And, and so it's, it's, it's something, it's, it, you know, again, I think it's an important first step as long as you recognize that that's what it is, that it is um, an area that both sides are likeliest to agree on. And uh, then from there you get to the harder part. But I would not, you know, um, assume as the Trump administration has been kind of um, advertising this as anything that is greater and more encompassing of victory than it is. It's a start is what it is. So again, switching gears back to U.S. politics a little bit. So you know, there's this idea that, you know, Trump is the anti-establishment candidate, right? After years of we had, we had one Bush, we had a Clinton, we had another Bush, and then we had President Obama as the only non-Bush or Clinton president or then candidate against Donald Trump in 2016. How much do you think people like uh, George W. Bush and the so-called establishment is to blame for the rise of someone like uh, Donald Trump, who again is a He's an avatar uh, for people's hate of sort of the upper classes of America in some ways, as Anthony has, has written and spoken about in the past. How much do you assign you know, blame or, or do you owe the rise of a figure like him to failures of the Bush administration and others like him in the American establishment? Yeah, I, I think I'll I'll pass on the word blame and is and and go with your amended version of the question, which is you know you how much is he sort of a you know how much how much is can be traced back to because I do think that you know um, a whole generation of uh, Americans has grown up now with the view that the U.S. government's not on the level and that that goes back to Iraq that goes back to Bush a man in a White House in the Oval Office telling us we need to go to war against this guy because he's going to kill us and it turns out not to be the case at all uh, and um, it's further the case that, that anti-establishment had been building up for quite a while uh, I think in, on both sides and we had seen um, establishment presidencies not deliver, but you know, of course, it's always much more complicated than that. It's not as if uh, that Barack Obama was himself the ultimate insider. You know, when he came to Washington, and um, uh, and he did, however, have a kind of insidery view that we should work with both parties. And if there's one major failure, at least according to Obama, as he's saying it these days, um, that one can lay at the doorstep of his presidency is that he was willing to trust the establishment, trust the institutions. To too much. So you can argue, I guess, that Donald Trump came in basically saying it's time to 
blow everything up. Um, but I, I lend less credence to that given the fact that um, uh, so many members of his cabinet have essentially used Washington as their personal piggy bank, that the swamp far from being drained uh, is, you know, it's, it's hardly a populous swamp. It's more like a, a swamp that he has bent to his will, uh, but one in which there is every bit as much lavish profiteering as there was before. So um, it, what, what he has framed as a kind of anti-establishment um, presidency is really only anti-establishment insofar as the establishment has shrunk to the size of a bathtub and the person in the bathtub is Donald Trump. Right. We have a question from our audience, sort of a follow-up, I think, from a, a UK-based participant about, you know, given the United Kingdom and its experiences in the past in the Middle East, negative experiences, and, and even in Iraq, how do you think George W. Bush, uh, you know, despite having sort of flimsy intelligence that drove the decision to invade Iraq, how was he able to get Tony Blair and another, uh, you know, massive country like the United Kingdom to join the Iraq War? Well, partly because Blair was in a sense already there, had been um, giving major speeches about uh, Saddam being a threat um, uh, to the Middle East and someone who ought to be deposed. So, so part of it's that, and all of that precedes Bush's presidency. Part of it also is that Blair really did believe in the, um, in the importance of the UK as the indispensable ally uh, to the US. And he did not want to forfeit that. He believed in particular after September 11th the, that um, global coalitions were going to form and, it need, and the, US need, uh, the UK needed to be by the US's side. He also believed, Blair did, that he could curb um, Bush's potentially reckless appetite and make sure that he was staying within the guardrails and uh, being mindful and respectful of international institutions such as the United Nations and so that he would not go it alone. But what is clear is that is that um, Blair was going to stick with him no matter what. And indeed, there is a memo that has since been declassified of Tony Blair in the summer of 2002, or maybe even spring of 2002, writing to Bush saying, George, I will be with you, whatever. So, um, uh, so it didn't take much. Blair saw the stakes and figured he'd better be by Bush's side. Right. Do you, this is a last question that I'll, I'll leave our audience with. You've been analyzing U.S. politics for over many eras. You wrote about the Tea Party movement, and you've even seen some Tea Party insurgents in Congress now become the establishment. So this, this whole thing runs in cycles. You wrote about the Bush administration. You've written at length about uh, the Trump administration, and most recently in that great article in New York Times Magazine about his battles with the intelligence community. If you look out in 10 years from now, in your expert opinion, where do you see the state of U.S. politics? Is it going to continue to remain in such turmoil in a way that, that uh, anytime we have a, a shift in power that the other side just you know, employs dirty tricks to tr try to prevent that side's agenda from being prosecuted? Or do you think there is some path to uh, bipartisanship and, and a little bit more you know, patriotism in terms of trying to address issues that are facing the country? Well, I guess what I'd say is that the next really a couple of years will tell the tale on that and how we manage. I mean, we're, we're now, you know, at a, um, the 180,000 casualties as a result of the coronavirus. And if within a year's time, this continues unabated, then I really do think we will see 
um, a kind of civil war. I don't mean that necessarily literally, but certainly um, to a country that has essentially been cloven in two uh, and, uh, and a country that because it has been cloven to uh, diminishes in stature, both economically and geopolitically, and, uh, and will experience um, a real and perhaps permanent decline. That's if we don't get our arms around this. Getting our arms around the coronavirus will entail, I think, working together. And uh, uh, it, it may, the working together may not take place immediately. And whether this is under a suddenly enlightened Trump administration or, an, or under a Biden-Harris administration uh, will require strong leadership one way or another. And, um, uh, and one hopes that that kind of success will be an elixir that begets more success, that actually awakens an appetite for bipartisanship. But even as I say this, you know, it's it's hard not, not to kind of descend into gloominess and 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 wonder just how that will happen if it hasn't happened already, and in particular how it will happen um, in the second Trump of uh, the second uh, uh, term of a president who now realizes that there are absolutely no checks on his behavior. I guess theoretically that could make him more enlightened, you know, this uh, could make him think now I have nothing to prove anymore and I'm willing to actually make infrastructure week happen. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I, I wouldn't place all my money on that. Right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Robert. You've, you've written on a, uh, a very diverse set of very interesting topics. We look forward to your next feature article in, in New York Times Magazine, as well as your next book. I'll, I'll let Anthony have a final word. All right. Thanks, John. Well, Listen, we, we don't, we don't uh, say this lightly. This was an amazing book, Robert. I really enjoyed it. I think it'll be a seminal study. People will look at this 25 years from now in terms of understanding the era and the direction that we went in. And hopefully it'll teach people to avoid some of the mistakes that were made. But in, in any event, I want to personally thank you for coming on. I hope we get a chance to get you back after the election so that we can talk a little bit about where the future is, not only for the intelligence community, but for the United States. So thank you, Robert. Appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me, Anthony. I'd be delighted to come back.